I didn't even realize I was in the middle of the earthquake because I was on a DR650, which is a big single, and it, it vibrates anyway. <laughs> I didn't know the earth was moving. <laughs> I just couldn't understand why all these houses were falling around, <laughs> falling down around me. Sometimes the road seems lonely and sad. There's danger around every bend. But my troubles are halved when I hear in my heart the voice of my faraway friends. Those faraway friends give me hope when I'm down. I know I can reach journey's end. There'll be laughter and light when I ride into town and we are together again. Each place that I go I take with me their smiles, the songs and the words that they've penned to share out the love and the hopes and the dreams amongst other faraway friends. Those faraway friends give me hope when I'm down. I know I can reach journey's end. There'll be laughter and light when I ride into town. Now, in case you didn't pick it up, this song is about motorcycle travel. It's about world travel and making friends around the world. It's called Faraway Friends, and it's by Linda Boutherstone-Bick, who is an adventure motorcyclist that you've never come across before. This is the first one that I've come across. She's been riding for over 52 years. She's ridden all around the world, and her life is about riding motorcycles around the world. That's it. You see, normally we get people on the show who have had what we would call a quote-unquote normal life, and then they break away and they go off on a trip and they have an adventure, and they can see things from a certain perspective, the, the juxtaposition between the two different lives, the life before and the life after. And we often talk about that. Well, Linda doesn't have that perspective because she is an adventure motorcyclist to the core. She'll be turning 70 not too far down the road, and she's going to celebrate that on her next adventure in South America. You do not want to miss this episode. Linda Bick, 50 years on the road. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, this is Linda Boothestone-Bick and I'm a, a keen motorcyclist and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And motortour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.motortour.com. Motortour. Ride, share, connect. That's www.motortour.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to go right in your saddlebag. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what we need when we're exploring the world. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Linda Boutherstone-Bick was born in England and emigrated to Australia in 1969, and her hometown now is Port Lincoln, South Australia. But home is, well, it's a concept, isn't it? Because Linda spends so much time riding her motorcycle around the world to different countries that, well, you could kind of say the world is Linda's home, and she has friends all around the world. 
She makes friends through travel and through meeting people while she's on the road, but also through her music, which you heard at the start of this show, and you'll hear again at the end. She sings folk music, and she plays all kinds of instruments, especially the whistle. And she finds that when she takes these musical instruments with her to the places that she travels, and she meets people that she doesn't speak their language, she says that the music always comes through. Linda's an incredible person, been traveling by motorcycle for over 50 years, all around the world, meeting all types of people. And she's one of those people that when you hear her story, you hear how she rides. You see, Linda rides old bikes. She's not sponsored by anyone. She doesn't have a big, fancy adventure bike. She doesn't have all the latest gear and the latest rain gear and helmets and the two-way communication system. In fact, quite the opposite. So here's Linda Butherstone-Bick, 50 years on the road. My name's Linda Boothestone Bick, because some people know me as one and some people as the other. Um, I live in South Australia on the Air Peninsula and in a place called Port Lincoln, which is a fishing town. Um, and I'm now retired, so I can spend my time going around the world, you know, on a motorbike, which I have actually all, all my life, but <laughs> now I feel that I can. <laughs> Linda, let's start off with exactly how long have you been riding now? Uh, exactly about 51 or 52 years, something 52 like that. 52 years. Wow, that yeah, is a long so. time. What got you into bike riding? Oh, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, I just, uh, local, local, there was local motorcycle club and uh, I got to know some of the lads from that and, and I had been, I had started driving already. Uh, I was just desperate to, to get out traveling. So, um, instead of going in a car to begin with, I did have a car, uh, I went traveling by motorcycle. Oh, so you saw the motorcycle as a, as a way to go traveling. That was your idea. Not so much uh, a lot of people ride the bike and they think this is great and they think, what can I do with the bike? You, you sort of came the other direction. Um, yes, because my motorcycle club that I, I, I joined because I, you know, I fancy one of the guys, um, I joined this club and it, it, it was, uh, um, <clears throat> affiliated with a, a club in Germany because at that time I was in England, of course. And, um, and so we went traveling over onto what they used to call a continent and now they call it Europe. Um, and we went to meet other motorcyclists over there. And, and so to me, um, it was a way of meeting people from different cultures, and I just love uh, exploring different countries. Did you grow up in a family uh, of travelers? No, not really. <laughs> no, my father actually was a fighter pilot in the war, um, and uh, he, he traveled uh, during when he was in the RAF, but he'd never traveled otherwise, no. How did you end up in Australia? Um, this is back in the 60s. In the 60s and the 70s, there was a, a big drive to get people to come over to Australia um, and um, especially men, you know, men with, with skills for the, like the car industry and the white goods industry. They, um, they had a lot of emigrants that came over and they were looking, for, um, they were looking for, for young women that would come over and marry them and settle down and breed. And I actually wrote a book about that. That's one of my books. It's about how I came over in 1969 with two other girls that I met um, in Australia House and how we actually um, travelled around Australia together. So that's in my book. So that's how I came, yeah. <laughs> and when you came to Australia, you brought a bike? Yes, I did, yes. I bought a, I bought a BMW with me from on the ship. From England. Let's let's talk about the how you started off traveling. I mean, you, so you you got the bike to travel. What did you do with it to begin with? Well, we, we I went around Europe with my motorcycle club. Uh, I used to go around Europe to all all the rallies, the Elephant Rally and the Dragon Rally, and lots of different rallies that they have. Um, so that was mainly that was just traveling to to see different countries and meet other motorcyclists and make a, a whole world of friends. And then at, I actually went to Moscow in 1967 um, on the FIM Rally, and that's where I met an, a couple of Australian guys, and they were the ones that taught me into uh, coming over to Australia. And what was it like arriving in Australia? Had you been there before? No, 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 no. It was good. It was good. It was another country to look at. <laughs> 
Yeah. So really, that, that was your first big step, I guess. I mean, although it wasn't necessarily a motorcycle adventure, you were moving there, but that was your first big move. Where did you go after that with your motorcycle? Oh, well, um, while I was in Australia, uh, then I went, I went back to England about three years afterwards, and then I went down through Africa. Um, that was in 1974-75. I went through Africa on a, on a BMW, and that took me a couple of years. And then uh, actually went back to England from there. But then I, uh, I get confused. I, I, I did go back to Africa again um, by boat, and then I went to a, came back to Australia. And I sort of settled in Australia for a while. And while the time I was here living in Adelaide, I went to America for about six months. I bought a bike in um, in New York, up upstate New York, and I rode around America for yeah for about five or six months on this little bike and sold it in uh, California before I came back. And then, oh, quirky, I get. <laughs> I've been a lot of places. <laughs> then I went to, um, I actually left Australia and went back to England, but then ended up in Spain and my bike was shipped over um, and I lived in Spain for a long time. And during that time, of course, I went to Morocco many, many times because I love Morocco and also all in Europe. And I went back again to um, Ukraine back to uh, a rally there in um, Odessa. Poor old Ukraine is uh, having a hard time at the moment, but it was lovely then. That was 95. So I did a lot of touring in Europe. Um, um, of course, I went to a lot of motorbike rallies and, um, yeah, made a lot of friends there. And then uh, I decided to do the overland trip. Um, I decided I wanted to leave Spain. And I came overland in 2005 to Australia. And that took me nearly two years to travel through Europe and through India, Pakistan, you know, Iran, all those places, and uh, Indonesia. And then I arrived in northern Australia. So that was 10 years ago now. It's amazing. Are all these trips done by yourself? Yeah, well, mainly um, the <clears throat> the earlier ones um, when I was in in England to begin with, with my I was with that motorcycle club. Um, I used to travel with with them, but most you know the long trips I've done by myself because um, I, I don't know it's very difficult to travel with other people unless you know them really well and unless you know you can get on with them. And half the time you think you can get on with them and then you don't. <laughs> So, I'm, and I just like to be free to do what I want to, you know, and go stop and take photos and go off in different directions. And I'm, I, I've met lots of overlanders and, um, and a lot of them want to do it really quickly, you know, want to prove something. Um, and I don't have to prove anything. So I just poodle along and take my time. And I've been around a lot of Australia, the same thing as a lot of people now, especially nowadays, they've got these big bikes and they, they do what they call the lap and they rush around in Australia, you know, in about two weeks or something, whereas I would take two years to do it. So I'm a slow one. <laughs> but but it's it's interesting. The, the, the way I'm looking at it here is, I mean, you, you're just sort of saying because you want to travel by yourself, that's why you went. But you were traveling back in a time when you, when you did your first big trip into Africa. A lot of people, first of all, were not traveling this way. This wasn't a, a thing like it is today with the Internet, you know, spreading uh, pictures of great fun on motorcycles and a lot of people jumping on their bikes and heading out. You were traveling at a time where there wasn't a lot of information and there certainly wasn't a lot of people riding bikes and there certainly wasn't a lot of women riding bikes through Africa by themselves. No, that's right. There weren't. I can't say I did meet any others. <laughs> um, and I... I didn't meet very many motorcyclists either. Um, and I didn't know, you couldn't, there wasn't even the Lonely Planet guide or any of those guides at all. And it was very difficult to find information on going to through Africa. Uh, I actually contacted some of these, there were a couple of overland, um, you know, these big trucks that go overland, you know, 20 people and they take them through Africa. There were a couple of these, was one called Encounter Overland. And I found another another private man who was taking people down and I um, got some information from him. I went to their our RAA, which is our Automobile Association, uh, for information and they went, oh, you're not going through Africa on a motorbike, it's impossible. <laughs> so I, they didn't give me, <laughs> and that's why I went and found these other people. And I went to I went to various motorbike clubs, I went to the BM club because I had a BM, 
and they didn't know. Um, it was it was very so it didn't matter. It just didn't matter. I just went anyway, and I knew. It, I'm writing a book about that now. That's my next book, and I'm doing research on Africa at that time. And um, I'm amazed at how much I didn't know. <laughs> but a lot of these things, if you know, if you know the political scene and what's going on around, you wouldn't go. And I and I honestly think that people get too much information these days. They they try and plan things too much, and it's it's ever so much fun when you just go and you don't know what you're letting yourself in for, then you you cope along the way, you know. That sounds so naive, but there we've had this conversation quite a bit in, on this show in the last few episodes, and it, it's coming out more and more that people are thinking that, hey, we've got information overload. You, you can get paralyzed mm. with the information mm. you read yes, and the fear, can. especially. Yes. Um, yes. There is a, there is a bliss to ignorance, is what I've said many times now at this point, where you're able to go out and discover and do things, and like you said, you're looking at it now, saying, oh, that should have been dangerous, but. Again, you're researching through uh, the even the news of the day, which was through you know the news broadcast eyes, and not necessarily the people who are going mm, and mm. meeting the average person. Mm, mm. Well, it's it's true. I've actually just been to Indonesia. Um, <clears throat> I was invited over to for a women's um, bike club in Indonesia, and they actually gave me a bike for a couple of days, which was lovely. And um, I, I don't know if you know, there's been a big hoo ha in Australia about um, the Indonesians. Um, uh, shooting a couple of our guys, you know, executing them because they were drug dealers. And um, <clears throat> there was a huge media overload in Australia before I left. Um, when I went to Indonesia, people say, oh, you, you go there, you know, they kill people. I said, well, only drug smugglers. Um, and uh, when I got back, they said, oh, what was, how was it? What was the tension? You know, I said, they didn't, most of the people, they didn't even know about it because they don't have television they don't have radio they don't have this meat and something they can't read a lot of them anyway so they don't get newspapers they don't it's, it's just information overload here and we get whipped up with all this um anti you know information i think it's dreadful so yeah, yeah a- you don't need it you don't need it yeah, they're constantly telling us what we should fear. I think that that seems to be a thing. And and the sad part about it, Linda, I think that the part of the reason they do it is because that's what a lot of people want to hear. And maybe that, you know, reinforces why you don't want to go anywhere, why you don't want to, you know, spread your wings and try something is because you're you're being fearful like you should be. Yes, that's right. Well, it's um yes, people have people have often said to me um when I when I'm writing something, when I'm writing an article or I I'm I'm talking about something, they say, "Well, you know, did you get attacked? Did you get raped? You know, did did you get shot? Did, what happened?" And I say, "No, well, no, nothing really. <laughs> I just had a good time." <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, I was in the middle of I was in the middle of a, an earthquake in Pakistan. It was a huge earthquake. I didn't even realize I was in the middle of the earthquake because I was on a DR650 which is a big single and it it vibrates anyway. <laughs> I didn't know the earth was moving. <laughs> I just couldn't understand why all these houses were falling around, <laughs> falling down around me. The Suzuki um, lovers will yeah, love yeah. that little story. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it wasn't until I stopped and people came up to me and said, oh, you shouldn't be here, you shouldn't be here. I don't know what's gone wrong, you know. It was funny, it was funny. But anyway, yeah, it's another, uh, yeah that's another book to be written, but... Um, uh, haven't, I haven't got time to write because I'm off doing things. <laughs> you obviously have had a, a bunch of different bikes. You've had BMWs and, and Suzuki's. Oh, yeah, I've had yeah. a lot, yeah. What, what makes you go from one to the other? Oh, um, I <clears throat> I really um, I really loved the old BMWs because um, uh, I started on British bikes, of course, in England. I started on BSAs and Triumphs and things, and then I got talked into getting a BMW because I went on this trip with this Australian guy, and, and every night I was sitting down adjusting my chain and topping up the oil and finding the things that had fallen off it and you know everything during the day. And this guy was just sitting there boiling his billy <laughs> Having a cup of tea, watching me do work on my Triumph, and he hadn't, and he didn't have to do anything to his BM. And uh, I thought, oh, I think perhaps I should get one of those. So I did, and I was with BMWs for for many years. And um, when I did this overland trip in 2005, I realised that the BMW I had at the time was like 28 years old, and it was it was forever, ha- you know, things were wearing out on it, and plus it was very thirsty. It was uh, an R60 stroke seven. 1978 model I think and um, 
uh, it was just really, really heavy on petrol and very heavy on oil. And, and I knew that it would be, wouldn't be the right bike to go overland with. Um, and also because I'm, <clears throat> I'm losing a bit, I've lost an inch in height <laughs> and, and I'm not as, not as strong as I used to be. Um, I, I was finding the BM, I'd had it for 20 years. I was finding it quite a handful when, when it was all loaded up. And I thought, no, I have to get something else. So another couple of girls um, in the, I belong to Women's International Motorcycle Association. And uh, another couple of the girls had um, had used these DR650s and they said they were really good. And then there were a couple of people in France that I was going to do the trip with and they were going to get DR650s. So I changed for the DR650, but it had to be altered so that I could get on it, of course, and that that sort of sent the balance off a bit. And I found it very high and very. Um, after eighty-one thousand kilometres, I decided it was too big for me. <laughs> so when I got to Australia, I sold it, um, and I bought a. I've bought a little um, uh, Super Sherpa, which it looks is a Kawasaki, and it looks like a scaled-down model of the DR650. And I met a girl in Sumatra, in Indonesia, who had one. And uh, I thought that must be a great bike for me. So I've, so I've got one now. But I'm finding that's too big. Um, because I like to go off on my own, um, Australia is a very dangerous place to go travelling by yourself if you go off the main road. And um, it's it's really it, – it, it, this bike is uh, is still too big for me. If, you, if I drop it when I'm off-road – um, I find uh, sometimes I have to wait an hour or so before somebody comes along to help me pick it up, and and you can die here. You can, if you go off road and you, there's nobody else around, you can you can quite easily die because there's no water. And I expect you know you know with the the wilderness areas in your country too. If there's no one around, um, it, it's it can be quite serious. So I'm I'm looking for a smaller bike even now than the 250. <laughs> so what would you be looking at? Well, over in Australia, we have um, what they call posty bikes, which are the bikes that everybody, the post people use. Honda has, has sold literally millions and millions and millions. There are uh, 110, um, Honda 110 CC, and they're a little bike that the posties use, and they're semi-automatic, um, and they're, they're beginning to get very popular. I've got to, I've got to get one soon because they're shooting up in price, um, but they're very sturdy. Uh, they're not obviously they're not fast, but they're very sturdy. And people have now been doing enormous trips on them. You've probably got somebody on your you know site that uses a posty bike. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we've had somebody. Uh, we had a couple of people on the show already who've been running around yeah. on posty bikes, and it's raised quite a, a fuss too. There's a lot of people looking at them. I heard a lot of chatter after we we had them exactly. Uh, yeah. on here because well, they're supposed right. to be so good. They are, but they're running out of the, this model. They're changed, the post office are changing to another model, which is not so good, apparently. And uh, so these ones are going, going to be very prized. So I've got to try and find one very quickly because I've got a big trip organized next year with some other girls. Um, after I get back from South America, I have to start planning for this other trip. <laughs> I'm getting a bit snowed under by all these things. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I'll go. For, I'll go for one of those. And I and when I go to South America, I'm going to buy a little bike, a little one two five or something. When you did the Africa trip, what bike were you riding then? Oh, I had a lovely old 1957 R50 BMW, which um, was wonderful. I mean, it broke down all the time because it <laughs> it was it was so old, and I hadn't you know prepared it quite as I should have done before I left but um but it was wonderful but and it's it lives in New Zealand now I didn't realize I was coming back to South Australia so I more or less gave it to a friend of mine in in New Zealand and he's got it so but that was the that was a wonderful bike and I I wish I still had it but um I haven't you know it's one of those things you (laughs) it's gone you have to get on with life (laughs) but that's I I think the old BMWs the old ones were really fantastic. They were they were the adventure bike. Um, you can go anywhere in the world on an old BMW, um, and you can fix it at the side of the road. Uh, you can get parts for it because they're you know almost like tractors. Um, new BMWs I wouldn't wouldn't care for. I don't care for. I can't. They're too big for me. All of them, even the even the six fifties that they say you can get lowered, and if they're too big, they're too heavy. And and you can't fix them at the side of the road. You have to take the specialised bikes. Whereas I really really prefer to be completely independent, you know. 
And the other thing is that um, there's all this specialised equipment that you wear and you hang on your bike, all this sort of Touratech stuff that we didn't have. And, and I don't need it. You know, I still wear tatty old things. And I mean, we are, all we had when we when I started riding were old barber jackets, you know, the wax cotton jackets and and fireman's boots <laughs> and i can get i can get by with anything i don't have to i haven't i seriously haven't got the money to spend on that sort of stuff because if i want to spend my my money on travel then i i'm not going i haven't got any money left over to, for fancy fancy gear so i'm quite happy as long as i'm covered up you know as long as i've got a decent helmet and um open face helmet of course because <laughs> i'm you know don't like those full face things and um yeah as long as i've got reasonable shoes and you know and gloves and things like that i, I don't worry about all that stuff describe what your outfit looks like right now for your next trip Oh, um, <clears throat> I'm not really 100% sure. I'm just getting in touch with the guys in South America um, to see what uh, what's available. But um, when I went to Indonesia just now, I, I, I took a, a little motorcycle, a, a summer motorcycle jacket that I got in America on, on the Internet for $30 or something. And I ripped out all the padding, <laughs> all the armor stuff because you can't move. You've got armor in. And um and I just wear um, thick jeans, like um, what we've got a, a mate called Hard Yakka here, which are very thick, thick denim. And I usually wear some small boots or if I can't, you know, um, usually just get them down at the um, secondhand shop. <laughs> I think my last lot cost me three dollars, these sort of suede boots. Um, and I take some little, I've got some little rubber boots with me if it rains. And I take um, a very thin um motorcycle um uh, wet weather gear you know just the thin ones the skins that you can put over something and, and i take uh, a thermal vest and a couple of t-shirts and and some light trousers to change into and that, that that's really it and then last i just got back from indonesia and i just take a rucksack with me and and strap it on the back of the bike you know and are you so camping I'm not, or yeah, well, you? I'm not. I'm. I. I couldn't camp in Indonesia. I. I did nine years ago when I went through, but it's changed there now, so you can't. But I did camp in Thailand last year. Um, I took a tent. Uh, well, I actually bought one when I got there because it's easier than carrying one, um, you know, on the plane. And I think I might try and do that this time. I'll. I'll find out what I can get over there. I'm not, not really fussed about it, you know, as long as it keeps me dry, and I'll take my sleeping bag. So, um, and in those countries, in those cheap countries, you don't have to make your own meal. You have to make your own meals over here because it's so expensive to, to buy anything. But, you know, in those cheap countries, you can usually eat very cheaply so at the side of the road. So, might not bother with camping gear or with um, cooking gear either. It makes me chuckle a little bit because the thought of you going for just a few dollars buying the stuff at the used store and compared to the juxtaposition of most people now who are equipping themselves to go on just a small ride, like you said, they've got all the gear, all yeah, the, yeah, the real fancy yeah. stuff. I mean, we're talking many, many thousands of dollars. Here. I know. I know. It's ridiculous. And, I think you know, mine costs about, yeah, $50 in all. The real slap in the face <laughs> is that you're going all over the world with this, and most people are going for a week or two. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, see, I don't even like GPS either. I'd rather get lost. <laughs> because then you stop and ask people, you know, estoy perdido. <laughs> That's one, something I learned in, in, when I was in Spain. I was always getting lost. So it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter. You have um, three books out. Uh, two of them are about motorcycle stuff and one of them is about yeah. uh, poetry. That's right, yeah. The book, uh, Where Angels Fear to Tread, what is that about? Um, that's about um, when I was living in Spain and uh, I was coming back from uh, an art exhibition actually in, in, <clears throat> in France and I met a girl who had a Celtic harp and she was Canadian actually um, and because I'm, I'm a musician and I used to play with another harpist um, I spoke to her and she wanted to go she was living in Portugal for a while and then she wanted to go to Africa so I, I said well if you come and visit me in Spain I can take you on the back of my motorbike as far south in Morocco as I can I won't, wouldn't be able to go any further because I wouldn't have the paperwork but I could, I could you know we could travel together and sing together because she was um, um, a trained um, singer and I am you I'm, I'm a good soprano so we actually we took on the back of my BMW and this was my R60 stroke 7 we took her Celtic harp 
and um, we I had my tin whistles with me and we did a actually did a concert in Casablanca so the the book is about how Georgia and I traveled together and then she went further south and I went came back and went with on my BMW to Odessa in Ukraine and I did other trips as well. And then we, we, we kept in contact by, um, by letter. In those days, it was letters. You're going <laughs> to have to run through exactly what that is. <laughs> snail mail, they call it now. Oh, right, the paper thing. <laughs> and um, and we, just, we actually linked up again about 18 months later. We linked up in Canada, in Toronto. I, I'm not in Toronto, um, in London, isn't it? London. East London or whatever. What do, they, what do they call it over there? Yeah, London, Ontario. Um, yeah, we, we linked up there again and we made a we made a tape in those days before CDs. <laughs> we made a, a music tape up in North Michigan together. And the book, so the book was covers like 18 months of us traveling together and then apart and keeping a link. So it's not it's not just a motorcycle book. It's about friendship. It's it's about, you know, meeting people, traveling and keeping in contact with people. And it's a, it's a friendship book. And it's got it's got a bit of got a few of my poems and songs and things in it as well. Um, clearly music is a big part of that book and what made that trip what it was. Um, mm. And what I read before was that you always take, I guess, whistles with you or tin whistles yes. or something like that. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah. And um, uh, I've um, I've got a little ukulele I'm taking with me as well now. Um, and I did buy, when I was in Thailand in 2006, I bought a little fiddle that was a handmade fiddling from Chiang Mai, but it got stolen. So, um, yeah, I, I take whatever I can because music is the best way to get through to people if you can't speak the language you can always play a tune sing a song and people you know just take you to their hearts i was at a bluegrass workshop last weekend and it was great a lot of people had banjos i play fiddle a bit (laughs) (laughs) i play lots of instruments but i've learned not not, none of them really well but you know well a whistle i suppose i do play well but my, my main voice is my main instrument is my voice and i write songs and I write songs about where I've been, you know, and places, really. It's it's sort of mind-boggling trying to get my head around how many trips you've done and how many different places you've been, because you've really been traveling your whole adult life, haven't you? Yes, I have, yeah. yeah. How yeah. do you do that? Um, well, because I'm, I'm very, very frugal. <laughs> I live very simply. Um, I don't spend money on, you know, people say to me, oh, how can you afford to go there? And I say, well, how much did your car cost you? Or how much did your you know, lounge suite cost you? And how much did your new extension for your house cost you? And, and how many kids have you got? Because um, people spend an enormous amount of money on their children. I haven't got any children, and I haven't—I ha- don't even have a house anymore. I, I rent—I rent a house, so um, I don't spend money on the things um, that people spend money on. I buy second-hand clothes. I hardly eat, hardly eat. <laughs> so it's—you know—it's—it's it's just a matter of priorities, isn't it? So I just save up my money and I go travelling. Is there ever a time where you think that, well, maybe I should have done the other way, maybe I should have done what everybody else does and bought into the the whole house and car and permanent job? No, no. I've had houses. I had a house in Adelaide and I had two houses in Spain when I lived in Spain, but they were just nothing but trouble. (laughs) They're nothing but expense. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I know I'm not, I'm, I'm quite happy with what the way I've done things. I'm very happy now in Port Lincoln. It's a lovely place to live. Mm. It's very true. Most people buy their house and consider it an asset when really it's a liability because an asset is supposed to make you money or at least have Mm. some money there for you. But a house, you're just continually putting money in and you'll never take it out because where are you going to live otherwise? Yes, exactly. Once you sell it, yeah. yeah. Three Wandering Palms, Travel Diaries and Story. What was that about? Well, that's about how I came to Australia. I met these other two girls at at Australia House in London and um, became friends with them before before we left to come to Australia, they came on a different boat. Um, we'd all signed up for this immigration scheme, not knowing that we were supposed to breed. And um, we got here and um, <laughs> and I talked them into into getting motorbikes. They were only 19 and 21, they were two sisters, and they'd never had anything to do with motorbikes before. Whereas I was, 
grand age of 23 <laughs> and I had a, my bike with me and, and I, I talked them into getting bikes because they saw what fun I was having, you know. Um, as soon as we started flatting together in Sydney, I got in contact with the local motorbike club and, you know, we met all these nice young men. <laughs> so they thought, well, this is a good good way to go and um, we travelled around Australia for about two years together. So this book was based on Angela's diaries that I didn't even realise that she kept. I only found out, you know, um, 10 years ago that she had the diaries and and, uh, and I didn't realise that we could we could do something with them until two years ago and then I suddenly thought, wow, that's an amazing story. These two girls were incredible and um, the roads over here were nothing like what they are now. I mean, most of them were dirt. So that what those two girls did was was pretty amazing and I thought it had to be written down so they both live in England and um, so I put the I put the book together uh, and I'm, I'm really proud of it and I'm really looking forward to getting the next one out as well that's going to be good too and that was Angela and Jackie the, the two that's sisters right. that went yes. on that trip with you yes yes they're, be- they're still best friends you know but I don't see them very often because they're in England they must have saw you as some sort of um, a little bit wild maybe yeah, they thought I was most peculiar when <laughs> when they first met me. They say so, in, you know, when they met me in, in Australia House, they thought I was really a bit strange. <laughs> a bit strange, but probably very intriguing because uh, you, you yeah. live a life that I think everybody wants to live, but very few of us have the courage to do it. Well, um, it's just the way it's turned out, Jim. You know, it's just... That's how it's it's gone, <laughs> and uh, you, you know I've had out. my ups and I've had my ups and downs as well. You don't always go through life, you know, being happy, but I've I've managed it, and I'm happy now. So, yeah. You didn't start out planning to do this for life. You must have had no, some, probably no. some other idea. Probably when you went to Australia, you had a different idea of what you were going to do for a living or what you were going to do when you got there. Um, no, 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 I didn't. <laughs> <We> didn't. <laughs> so how far back do we have to go? <laughs> Before I was normal. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to say there? that, Linda, but I mean, how far back do we have to dig? <laughs> I don't know. I went. I mean, I actually went to a, a late, you know, a girls' grammar school, and uh, and I suppose that most people thought that you were supposed to sort of um, leave school and get married. I mean, in those days, a woman couldn't even buy a house on her own. You know, you couldn't couldn't do that. You had to be married to have a house, and you so you had to be married to fit into a lot of things. But I was very very fortunate, I think, that my parents um, were were very liberal minded. They they my mother said to me, "Don't get married young." She didn't get married till she was twenty five to my father because he was in the war. You know, so they couldn't get married until he came back. But she was she'd always worked. She'd always had her own money. She she kept a job even when they were married apart from when she had the, the kids. But, um, and, and they, they said to me, you don't have to do that. I wasn't expected. I think a lot of women, especially in those times, were expected to get married, and I wasn't. And my, and my father said to me, there's no such word as can't. And, and he, he was very helpful um, when, I, when I decided, you know, I wanted to have a car and, and I wanted to have a motorbike. They just said, all we, all we want to know is where you are, who you're with. They met all the boys from the club. We just want to know where you are and who you're with and that you're safe. And they didn't try and stop me from doing any of my, my travels. So I was, I was blessed in that way that they were very, very good to me, my parents. They've been passed away a long time ago now, but, yeah, I was lucky there. That first club you joined, how many women were in it? Oh, there were there were a few actually. Um, yeah, there were. Well, I guess back were, in that time, though, people were they were they were going to the club in couples, weren't they? Um. Well, yes, yeah, some of them were. Uh, I mean, I, you, to, a lot of the boys in my motorcycle club were were young apprentices. That's why they had bikes. They couldn't afford a car, so they they buy a bike. Bef- you know, they were they were doing their apprenticeships. Um, most of them. Then there were a couple of two or three girls, I think, that started to ride. Um, then, uh, mainly young single people. Um, we were all, you know, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and then they started to sort of gradually pair off. But um, in the club at the time that I was in, it was mainly single people. And we all liked traveling, you know, we just, well, we, we had a club, we had a motorcycle club, which um, is still going now, actually, but they're all, you know, most of the people are my age, so they don't do as much, but they still do a bit. Um, they, 
they they did trials, they did scrambling, they did road racing, um, and they did adventure riding. So everybody in the club had, you know, we all did. It, they, it wasn't specialised like these clubs today. Motorcycling today has changed enormously. You know, you're either a road racer or you're a tourer, or you're you know do trials riding. You, you specialise and you have to, all the special bikes and the special gear. In those days, you bought a motorbike. If you wanted to do scrambling, you put different scrambles tyres on it, you know, and you did change the gearing. The same with racing. Some people used to ride their bikes to the racetrack and then change the gearing and the tyres when they got there. And it, that's what you did in those days. So it, it's so different, very, very different. Which is better? Well... <laughs> I think the old days were, but then, you know, it's because I'm old. <laughs> we go, oh, it wasn't like that in my day. <laughs> we do tend to hang on to, uh, I, I guess, things yeah. that we're used to. But but the yeah. thing is, when, when you talk about it, it's an interesting point you bring up with the specialization of everything, and that's working with everything. I mean, you know. Yes, um, everything. You know, everything. Everything seems to be very specialized. And you'll notice that, I mean, I, I've sort of noticed this in, the, in recent years, that even cyclists, when you see someone riding a bicycle along, they've got all the gear and they've got all the brand names on them, and the, ever, ever, they're, to, they're totally kitted out. We are a society that loves to kit ourselves out for every activity that we do. Yes, and I, I used to think that was just American, um, which because when I was in America in 83, 84, whenever it was, I went over there and I bought this little 360 Honda and toured around, and I went to motorcycle rallies, and all of, all the Americans had all this all this matching gear, you know, all their T-shirts are the same. Well, we weren't like that in England. We used not to be like that in England, and I thought it was a sort of American idea that they had all this fancy gear, but, of course, it's, it's become worldwide. How would you describe your life um, to someone who um, who maybe doesn't have an insight into motorcycle travel? <laughs> well, to me, it's brought a world of friendship um, and, yes, a, a certain freedom that you don't get if you're, um, you know, enclosed in a car. Um, so I... I I just find that I've made friends through motorcycling and music. I've made friends all around the world. And, and I think that's the main thing that, that has attracted me to it. Um, I don't like fixing the bike so much these days. I'm not very keen on working on it. I used to be. But the new bikes, you can't work on them properly anyway. Not If I still had a BMW, I might be more interested. But, um, yeah, it's it's just a way of, of getting out there and meeting people and, and actually being in nature instead of enclosed um, cut off from it. Uh, over here in Australia, um, we've got a phenomena now called the grey nomads. And people um, who get to retirement, they sell their houses or they rent them out and they buy these enormous great Winnebago, um, you know, recreation vehicles, uh, which I did see a lot of, you know, in America. But now they've, in, in Australia, they've taken over. They're just travelling around. All these people are in these boxes, Um and I can understand it in a way, but to me, there would never, I would never do that. I'd always go by motorcycle because motorcycles just got a different feel about it. And as I say, you meet people and you're immediately friends with another motorcyclist, <laughs> you hope. <laughs> and, you, and you don't miss the, the comforts of, um, you know, seeing them driving along in their Winnebago's where they can pull over and make a meal sort of in inclement weather and be fine. That doesn't bother you. Well, no. And normally, if I've, they've got these rest stops here, and uh, which is great, great for me because uh, usually I, I used to have to go off and find somewhere in the bush to camp, you know. But now they've got these rest stops, and uh, I pull up alongside these people, and usually they give me a cup of tea <laughs> or a meal or something. And if I've forgotten things, which I usually do, like box of matches, I just go up and ask them, and they all oh, come in, you know. <laughs> so no, I'm not. I don't miss that. No, I don't miss it. Well, of course, everyone who's listening to when uh, on this show is going to ask the, the the same question, or a lot of people will. How do you make a living while you're traveling around the world? Well, well, you you just stop and and work somewhere, um, and and you, you you're not fussy about what jobs you take, you know. Um, Things have changed a lot. In the 60s and 70s, it was very, very easy to, to get a job. You know, I'd go away and then I'd come back to England and I'd just go and sign on and I'd get a job almost immediately, whatever it was, driving or uh, office work or whatever, you know. Um, uh, and, and every country that I've lived in, 
if I've stayed there for a while to save up money, yeah, I've had to find a job. And Spain was very difficult because um, I didn't speak the language to start off with. And um, and Spain, even in though even 20 years ago, whenever it was, I went there. Um, it was very difficult to have to get a job. They had a very high unemployment rate. They've got even worse now, but they've always had in the south of Spain very high unemployment rate. So I I just had to find what I could, you know. I'd, try and do bar work I taught English a bit I actually when I bought one of my houses I renovated it and rented it out for for travelers and uh, you know it was hard work it was hard work finding keeping yourself alive finding finding something to do you know that would make money but that's what people do if they're if they're traveling and um, yeah I've never had a a proper job as it were (laughs) Hmm. Um, so yeah I've just made do with whatever I can and fortunately now I've got the Australian pension, which is wonderful. I just love the way you answered that too, because you said, well, you just get a job. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's just, a, obviously you're so used to it that um, uh, that you don't even have to think about it. I mean, for most people, it's a very scary thing to, you know, all of a sudden quit their job that they have now and head off mm. uh, in the world and just count on the fact that when they need money, they're going to try and get work there's a lot of the unknown there. And I think you must be comfortable with that. You must be to the point, I'm sure after all these years, that um, you don't get rattled from it. Well, no, I suppose I don't. I, you just have to do it. You know, if you want to be somewhere. Um, and it, I mean, it helps that I'm a very outgoing person and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an opportunist. If I, I, I look for, if, for opportunities to do something, I follow leads, you know. You have to be pretty persistent um, and, and sometimes it gets you down. But, I mean, I'm very, very happy that I don't go, have to go looking for work anymore. Just so happy about that. <laughs> but um, when, I was, when I was in those countries, I, um, mainly, mainly I, I saved up in a country where I knew I could save up, like England or Australia, I saved up the money. And then when I went to these other countries, um, I had the money to get through. I mean, I, I did work in South Africa for a for a while because I'd run out of money by the time I did the Africa trip. But in those days, it was easy because if you would, I mean, sad to say, if you were white, you would get a job. You know, you'd go into an office and you'd almost automatically get a job um, in those days. So things were, were different. Um, and things are very different now with the unemployment worldwide. It's, it's probably not as easy. But I think a lot of people, a lot of world travellers that I've met, um, they've they've been in their like late twenties, thirties or something, and they've got a house or an apartment that they've rented out while they've been away, while they're away, and they get a little bit of income from that. Or, or they've got a job. That a young man that stayed with me a couple of months ago. He was um, a German guy, and he was a, a, a what they call a Zimmerman which is a, like a carpenter builder. And so he had that skill and he worked, he's been working around Australia, picking up on jobs, helping out, you know, building things. And other people I've met, some people have been good with IT um, and they've, they've managed to get little, you know, into teaching IT or something in different countries. Um, it, it's just a matter of, of making contacts and keeping your eyes open and following everything up and and being prepared to do anything. I mean, I've cleaned toilets for a job up in the north of Australia. And you've got to be there and just do it, you know, and don't worry about what you're doing. Just you're surviving and you're getting money together for the next trip. I'm sure you've heard people talk about, you know, more enlightened people talk about living in the moment and the fact that that's really how we're supposed to be living our lives. However, very few of us do because we worry about the things in our past and we worry about what's coming Mm, up, mm. you know, tomorrow. Living your life the way you've done it, do you feel you're living more in the moment? Because you're not, you're clearly not as worried about tomorrow if you're not, if you just figure when I run out of money, I'm going to get a job. Whereas most people couldn't handle that. You know, they would have to, oh no, no, I've got to have something lined up for it. Do you think you're living more in the moment because of that? Hmm. <laughs> well, that's a hard one because it's just something that I've that I've always done. Um, and, and yes, yeah, sometimes I have been worried um, about finding work, but I, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's it's a hard one. I do I do tend to live in the moment here. I'm very very busy here. I'm very very busy. I'm involved in lots of different things, and I have to rush from one thing to another, and that's really good. Keeps me going. It keeps me fit and. Um, 
and and I and I don't worry about things so much now. If I can't get it done today, then I'll just it just has to be done tomorrow. You know, I don't worry. So maybe you know, maybe I've got to a stage in life where I'm I'm happier than I may, may have been in a lot of other times in my life. I don't know. After fifty-one or fifty-two years on the road, do you mm. see it coming to an end anytime soon? Are you going to finally, you know, uh, hang up your your riding jacket <coughs> and say, "Yeah, okay, I'm done." Well, no, I'm I'm living here in Port Lincoln, and I think I'll probably stay here now. Um, I've been here for four, five, nearly five years, I think, and I really like it here. I've got a lot of friends here. I've made a, a little niche, but I won't stop travelling because it's like you know, I'm going to go away for. I'm leaving here in October. I'm going to go be in South America for three months and then go back to England and go to a folk festival in, in Scotland and, and maybe pop down to Spain and see my friends that I used to live, you know, live beside down there. So um, I, I don't see myself stopping traveling, um, but I but I do like to have a base. I've always liked to have a base, actually. People seem to think that I'm a com- complete nomad, but I used to I had a house in Adelaide for... 15 years I had a house in Spain for 18 years you know and it's not that I've been completely homeless it's just that I like to go off traveling and now when you head off to South America I believe you're going to be celebrating your 70th birthday yes yes I'm going to be in Bolivia I'm going to be with some of my Bolivian music friends you know the ones that play the panpipes <laughs> so I'm, I've decided because last my 60th birthday I was in the Himalayas um, I was with my DR650 and some other overlanders and I was in the Himalayas and my 50th birthday I was in New Orleans. <laughs> my 40th I was in boring old Adelaide but I still had a good time. Um, but yeah, so I like, you know, I've got to, I thought, you know, where can I go that's better than than uh, the Himalayas? And I thought, well, and they, I could be up the mountain in, in Bolivia and so I'm going to make it there, yeah. You plan good birthdays. I'm really thinking I have to step mm. mine up a little bit here. That's <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to. I mean, if you, <laughs> if it's every ten years, you know, you have to go and make a big one. <laughs> <laughs> Linda, we ask a lot of people about adventure and defining the word adventure here on this show, and I'm I'm very curious from your perspective because you're one of very few people who have been traveling. Actually, you might be the only person who's been traveling around as much as you have. But the word adventure, I mean, it gets overused a lot nowadays, and a lot of people Mm. will complain Mm. that it's put in places where it doesn't belong. How would you define adventure, and is adversity or time required for it? Oh. Oh, um, adventure. Well, defining adventure. It's just going out to find something new, possibly that, you know, you haven't done before. Um, that that does take a bit of effort. <laughs> um, it's not not necessarily going to be easy going, and that you you would pitch yourself probably pitch yourself. It's not always going to be handed to you on a plate, and and it would be yeah. It's looking for new things, new people, and having new experiences. Um, yeah, and hopefully coming out of it alive. <laughs> <laughs> And do you think you have to be gone for a certain amount of time or do you think you can find it in a day or a week or a month? Oh, I think, it, yeah, oh, I think you could have an adventure every day if you if you go off and try something new. I think you can have one every day. I've, I've been quite often gone out with a with a friend here and we've gone to walk. Because I like walking as well. I like, like going up mountains and things. And uh, and if we've gone out to a place that we haven't gone, gone to before and, and we don't know quite what to expect, we've had an adventure. And after all this time, how many miles and countries do you think you've been through? Oh, I don't know. I've got no idea. I've got no idea. I think when I did the overland trip uh, coming from Spain um, all the way through to Australia, I think I did something like 28 countries in that on that trip. But um, but then there's been other countries, you know, through Africa, all those countries. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't count them. You get a lot of people that, you know, have all their stickers on their bikes saying, I've been through in number of countries and I've done in number of miles. I'm not interested in that. I'm just interested in, in, you know, having a good time and meeting people and it doesn't matter how many countries I go through for me. <laughs> I love that. And I had the feeling that was going to be your answer just by getting to know you a little <laughs> bit now because you're not doing it for anyone else and it's very clear that no, you're not. No. Really, I mean, you, you have uh, the two books out, but really it sounds like you could have 20 books out. Oh, yeah, I've, I've actually... Yes, I ha- I could, and and I I have got other books planned, 
But as I say, um, next year, the one about Africa will be out. I've, I've got through the first manuscript, the first uh, first draft of the manuscript, and I'm collecting photographs and things, and I'm collecting things. So, But I won't be able to get it done this year before I go away. But it'll definitely be out next year. So look out for that one. That's going to be a great book. And then I've got the Overland trip to write up about. Um, but everybody writes up about the Overland trip. So I've got, you know, that, that might be a bit old hat. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and there's lots of other books people have suggested to me. Why don't you write about this or what? And I say, yeah, well, I when I you know when I can't um, move around much anymore, I'll I'll do it. Linda, when that book comes out, your next book about Africa, you make sure you get a hold of us because we want to get you back on to talk about that. Yes, no, it's it's going to be fantastic. I've really enjoyed doing the research on it. I've really enjoyed every minute, and I found a guy that I hadn't seen through um, since I last saw him in South Africa in 1975. And it turns out he lives in Adelaide, um, which is, you know, our our nearest city. And I I tracked him down um, a couple of months ago. And it was amazing meeting him again. (laughs) And the stories we had, you know. So that's what's been, that was what was good about the last book too, Three Wandering Ponds, um, that I tracked down people I hadn't seen since that time and made you know made friends with them again and they they told me things that i'd forgotten and that's the great thing well to me people are very important so um it was that's but that next book yeah i'll get in touch with you for sure when um africa comes the african one comes out and that's what you travel for isn't it is for the people to meet people. yes yes yeah definitely and you'd mentioned cultures and, and stuff and i guess the scenery is an added thing to that Yes. Yeah. Well, it's lovely. Yeah. I like taking photographs. I haven't got I haven't got a posh camera because <laughs> I keep losing them. I think on my overland trip, I got through four cameras. <laughs> <laughs> I just kept putting them down somewhere. Now I tie them to my body, <laughs> but I only get the I only get the little hundred dollar ones, you know, because um, they, they're good enough. Uh, you know, you, I mean, now especially you've got Picasso and Photoshop, you can do wonderful, <laughs> wonderful things sure. with them. But um, no, I just uh, I take photos and I do put them up on on website. I had a my overland trip. I had a German guy who who made a website for me, and I'd sent him the photos and he put them up. And that was that was really nice of him. So yeah, I think photos are important, but um, it doesn't matter. You know, it's your memories, isn't it? Really. Well, hopefully somebody from GoPro or one of the camera companies or something will be listening to this and they'll uh, contact you and, and want to no, fix you I'm up not. with some, some nice cameras. Yeah, and I'll lose them all. <laughs> or well, get them stolen, that's why. <laughs> at that point, they've got a lot of cameras, so hopefully yes, you, we'll make you won't have that fear. But I, I just can't help but imagine the, the things you've seen and the things that, that you must have captured. Yeah. Where, where yeah. are your photographs displayed? What What's the website? www linda b or one word l-i-n-d-a-b dot i-d dot a-u and that's got all the photos from the books as well because we i had to have the photographs um in printed in black and white because i couldn't afford to have them in color but the in on those websites the two books um the photos from the two books are in color and I've got a, a you know a variety of photos up on that. A friend of mine does the website for me. I can't do it; it's too difficult. <laughs> she, she's done it. <laughs> and your books are available there. They can also be purchased on Amazon. Yes. Um, the new I just mentioned that the uh, I'm I'm having where angels fear to tread republished through an through another um, another place. So, uh, and we are waiting for the we're waiting for it to come back the proof book. So it's not going to be available. It's not, it's going to be available on Amazon, but not until the end of this month. But um, so if people are looking for that one, just wait for the new edition because it's got a few extra things in it. So uh, but but uh, Three Wandering Palms is available on Amazon now, but uh, the other one will be available on Amazon the end of this month with the new edition. Will the new edition say new edition on the cover? It, it says it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it says it somewhere, I think, yeah. And it's got a different picture of me on the back. It's got a picture of me playing my guitar. <laughs> oh, nice. if, if people want to look up, there was a little video of me on, on my over, about my overland trip, which was made by the ABC here in, in, um, in Port Lincoln. But it's, it's, you can find it if anyone just goes into uh, Google and puts in Linda Bick, uh, Young at Heart, it'll come up. It's a video. It's just a little five-minute video, and it gives gives pictures of my overland trip. So it's Linda Bit Young at heart, and it's an ABC West Coast production. But it did come up when we went into Google. We we found it. 
Straight yeah, I away. found it. I, I, we, we looked at it here. This video that ABC did, um, how did this come about? Um, well, because we're all friends with one another here in Port Lincoln. It's a small enough place. Everybody knows everybody. And I'm quite often on the radio talking about various things. And Emma Pedler, the, the girl that did it, she, she uh, does videos with people. She helps people make them. And she asked me if I'd come in and do that with her. So uh, I said, yeah, sure. It's just one of her little projects. That's a great video, and it's four minutes long, and uh, mm. we'll put a link mm. to that as well in the show notes, mm. as well as a link to your website so that people can mm. go and uh, and order your books, because certainly there's got to be some good reading here between mm. these books, and we look forward to that one coming out in Africa. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it'll be a good one. Well, Linda, I'm going to say goodbye to you. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the interview, Jim, and, and good luck to all of the listeners. And um, and I hope to be at, at an HU meeting in South America, in Argentina this year, so maybe I'll do a talk there. I've been speaking with Linda Butherstone-Bick, who is in Port Lincoln, South Australia. You can find out more about Linda by visiting her website, www.lindab.id.au. And of course, as always, that link will be in our show notes along with other things. So trip on by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com and look at this show and all the other shows we do that you can download them all for free. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And motortour.com, the world's only independent social community for bikers. Plan routes, share travel blogs, and meet other bikers on what's been dubbed as the new Facebook for motorbike riders. It's 100% free, so join today at www.motortour.com. Motortour. Ride, share, connect. That's www.motortour.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to go right in your saddlebag. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what we need when we're exploring the world. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. And before we wrap up this episode, we're going to listen to Linda Butherstone-Bick sing her song, Far Away Friends, that you heard a little bit of at the start of this episode. And this song is about travel, it's about motorcycles, and it's about friends. Sometimes the road seems lonely and sad There's danger around every bend But my troubles are halved when I hear in my heart The voice of my faraway friends Those faraway friends give me hope when I'm down I know I can reach journey's end There'll be laughter and light when I ride into town And we are together again Each place that I go I take with me their smiles The songs and the words that they've penned To share out the love and the hopes and the dreams Amongst other faraway friends Those faraway friends give me hope when I'm down I know I can reach journey's end There'll be laughter and light when I ride into town And we are together again There's times I'm not sure where I'm headed or why And I don't seem to follow the trend But I know more than once I've got back on the track with the help of a faraway friend Those faraway friends give me hope when I'm down I know 
another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Don't forget to drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Send us your comments and show suggestions. Follow us on Facebook. Connect with us on Twitter. On Twitter, we're at at advriderradio.com. And you can find out more about this episode and all the episodes we do by going by our website and clicking on the podcast episodes link. It'll take you to all the episodes that we've done, and you can listen to them all. They're free to download. Hey, you want to do Adventure Rider Radio a favor? There's a couple of ways you can do it. One, you can trip on over to iTunes, give us a rating on iTunes, let them know what you think of the show. The other thing you can do is go on the forums. Let everybody else know. Tell your friends. Tell anybody who hasn't heard about Adventure Rider Radio. Tell them about the show. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget when you're dropping by our advertisers, make sure you let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Let them know what they're doing is working for them. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. And now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Adventure Rider Radio is made possible through Canoe West Media and special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. This is Lois Price of Lois on the Loose, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio.